Section 18 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton, 18. May 19, 1922. The New Witness. At the Sign of the World's End. The Real Case Against Revelations. By G. K. Chesterton. A vast amount of nonsense is sure to be talked about the correspondence of Mr. Bernard Shaw and Sir James Barry with Mrs. Patrick Campbell, both in defense and denunciation. It will probably be both solemn and trivial, for the two things generally go together. While I take the matter itself much more lightly, I should like to use it as a text for some social criticism about something that is worth talking about. I am not in the least taken in by Mr. Shaw as a lover, because of what he wrote to Mrs. Campbell, any more than I regard Mr. Shaw as a thief, because of what he writes about communism. But I do think he is a socialist because he does not understand the intellectual point about property, and I do think he consents to pose in this way because he does not understand the intellectual point about privacy, and this limitation, logical rather than ethical, is really important. The modern world is not really suffering a moral breakdown, but rather a mental breakdown. It is not too wild to endure old conventions. It is rather too tired to understand them. A strong example may be seen in all this cult of indiscretion, or the publication of intimate things, that is criticized in Mrs. Asquith or Mrs. Campbell. It is not wicked, but it is quite wonderfully stupid. It is not necessarily wicked to fire off a pocket pistol under the impression that it is a big gun. It depends what or whom you are trying to hit. But it is stupid to not know that a pocket pistol has not got the range and cannot hit the mark. It may seem queer that we have lately seen a decrease of privacy and an increase of secrecy. I mean that while private things are made public, public things are kept private. Evil is always a place where extremes meet, and he who holds a candle to the devil always burns the candle at both ends. Societies decay largely by getting things displaced or reversed in this fashion. Thus, while we are seeing around us a degree of license that can rightly be called pagan, we are also seeing a destruction of liberty that is rightly called Puritan. What is bottled up in one place breaks out in another place, only it is the wrong place instead of the right place. The police, having been set on a campaign against drink, the papers are full of an orgy of drugs. The age of materialism is ending in the maddest and most credulous sort of spiritualism. All these examples are obvious, and they throng in thousands to the memory. But this particular paradox of the growth of secrecy in the wrong place and the loss of privacy in the right place is rather especially connected with the crucial political and social problems of the hour. That which is said in the inner chamber is sometimes proclaimed on the housetops, but that which obviously ought to be proclaimed on the housetops is only whispered in the inner chamber. Anything can be trumpeted abroad so long as it is trivial. Anything can be buried and destroyed so long as it is important. 
Our civilization seems to have entered the epoch of a new sort of publicity and privacy, in which it will be entirely occupied with washing dirty linen in public and whitewashing dirty scandals in private. This idea gives a singular and sinister irony to the phrase about personalities, which was so consistently used to combat an effort for clean government. Those who complained of the hushing up of the Marconi mystery were called personal for all the world as if they had been talking about a pimple on Lord Murray's nose or a patch on Mr. Fenner's trousers. What they were complaining of was the use which certain public men had made of their public position in relation to a public contract, which they ought to have made public in a public senate, but which they did not. Since then we have had a flood of all of the futilities that we did not want, and all of the facts and fancies that really were private, or might well have been private. The politician's nose or the financier's trousers might very well have figured in the reminiscences of Mrs. Asquith or Mrs. Patrick Campbell. All the reticence that was really due to tolerably good motives, to motives of politeness or delicacy or dignity or old friendship, has largely been swept away. But there has been no break in the reticence that was really due to bad motives, to fear and financial pressure and the more cynical sort of favoritism. And if we ask for the cause of this curious inversion, it can be found, I think, in the matter which is the moral of so many of our social stories, the mental fatigue that misses the intellectual point about the ancient independence of the home. Thus, I am quite ready to believe Mrs. Patrick Campbell and Mr. Bernard Shaw if they agree in saying that the correspondence just published was altogether a joke, but I cannot agree with them in thinking it's sensible to publish such a joke. It seems to me a blunder in psychology not to be expected of a fine dramatist and a fine actress. It is the essential of a skit that it must sound serious, but it's the nature of the crowd to take anything that sounds serious and assume that it is serious. The point about the jokes of friends, like the jokes of families, is not so much that they must not, is that they cannot be explained. To expose them is not to explain them, but rather to obscure them. Their publicity is not even a revelation. It is rather a noisy concealment. This applies equally to a burlesque love letter and to a serious love letter. In the case of the serious letter, the mistake of printing it is that it never seems to be serious. The point is not that the feelings are too sacred to be communicated to the public. The point is that they are not communicated to the public because it is not a public mode of communication. It is not that a man is telling us about his most secret emotion. It is that he is not telling us anything because he is talking in a secret language. That is the difference between a love letter and a love song. There is nothing foolish about publishing a love song any more than about publishing a hymn. No feelings can be more sacred than religious feelings, but religious poetry is roared aloud by a great mob of people in an enormous public building. But the difference is in the medium chosen. When a man writes a poem, whether religious or romantic, he deliberately selects dignified words which express the dignity of his subject by the standards of established speech. Whether he always achieves that dignity, a study of some hymns and some love's poems have led the sensitive to doubt but he means to reveal his private feelings in the recognized public diction. He is not only trying to praise, but to do it so that the praise may itself be praised and praiseworthy. But private praise that is only meant for private acceptance will not sound like praise at all. It will sound like piffle, and anyone with the least notion of human nature ought to know it. 
I have often tried to insinuate onto the strange souls of our social reformers the startling paradox that there is something rather impressive about the institution of motherhood, even among persons who have less than 500 a year. But I doubt if I should assist my propaganda on behalf of maternal dignity if I had all the conversation of mothers to their babies taken down by a dictaphone and proclaimed over the country through a megaphone. It is not because the love of a mother for a baby is a secret too holy to be known. Human life is so constituted that most of us happen to know it. It is because the thing is of such a kind that when it becomes publicity, it becomes parody. So it is with any other kind of love. And if it be true of a love letter that is really a love letter, it is, if possible, more true of a love letter that is only a lark. And the serious thing will never sound serious, so the funny thing will never sound funny. The fun is funny because the friend is friendly. The very fact that a man has a friend ought to teach him that he cannot suddenly turn 10,000 total strangers into his friends. Even a communist ought to know that you cannot revolutionize the community so suddenly. But for all that, the fallacy of communism has some serious connection with the matter. I do not know if Mr. Bernard Shaw would really differ from me on this point, but if he does, I am sure it is for the same fundamental reason for which he differs from me about socialism and property. What the socialist does not understand is that there is a field of operations which must be independent because it is incommunicable. A peasant will not report to a county council exactly what he is going to do with his own house or field any more than an artist will report exactly what he is going to do with his unfinished story or statue. The difficulty might be expressed in many more subtle ways, but it can be expressed roughly by saying that he does not know. He feels that he has motives that would be meaningless to the world and that if he has to justify everything he does, he will justify it badly and do it worse. In this sense, property is as much a secret as a love affair, and the family itself is a family joke. End of 18. Recording by Tindra.